There is something so delightful about the back cover plot description of a Sweet Valley High book. Take this one. Sweet Valley is stunned by the news. Beautiful young Elizabeth Wakefield lies in a coma on the brink of death after a horrible motorcycle accident. Elizabeth's boyfriend, Todd, is consumed by guilt. He was driving and escaped unharmed. He feels totally helpless. All he can do is wait for a change in Elizabeth's condition, a change that might mean the loss of the only girl he's ever loved. But no one is more shattered than Elizabeth's twin, Jessica. As she keeps watch over the silent body of her sister, she is overwhelmed by despair. Without Elizabeth, can life go on? Nobody panic. This summary comes from the back cover of book number seven in Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High series, which means Elizabeth absolutely wakes up and there are many, many more dramatic antics to come. What this summary doesn't address, however, is the absolute chaos that ensues when the Wakefields are home from the hospital. And that is the focus of today's conversation, which is all about a book called Dear Sister. When Elizabeth recovers, she starts acting really unlike herself. Actually, a lot like Jessica. This is really difficult for her usual carefree sister to deal with, and even harder for Todd. Sprinkled throughout Dear Sister, we also have plenty of bizarre teen adult interactions, some very lax parenting, Jessica's very close brush with self-awareness, and the ample descriptions of the twins' hotness that we've come to expect from the series. We'll get to it all today. Today's episode does include discussions about eating disorders, sexual assault, and fat phobia, so please do listen with care. It is always a treat to podcast with other podcasters, especially podcasters who share a bookish obsession that's adjacent to my own. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Anna and Karen, the hosts of the Double Love podcast. On Double Love, Anna and Karen explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High book by book. You will get a taste of what they do on their show on this episode, and you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at svhpodcast. Don't be a stranger to SSR on social media either. We are at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. There are tons of fun things to explore on the SSR website too. Links to all kinds of resources from each episode, guest book recommendations, and the SSR shop, where you can grab tote bags, t-shirts, bookmarks, stickers, and coming soon, hats. You can also tap the support button at the top of the SSR homepage to learn more about becoming part of the podcast's Patreon community. Go to www.ssrpodcast.com for all the goodies. I have shouted out my love for Inkwell threads on the podcast before, and I'm about to do it again. My friends at Inkwell recently released a new spring line. My favorite offerings are the Bookmobile World Tour t-shirt and the Reader's Paradise tank. Everything I've purchased from Inkwell has been high quality and has quickly become one of my most worn pieces of clothing. Plus, you can get 20% off all Inkwell Threads purchases when you use code SSRPOD at checkout. Shop the whole collection at www.inkwellthreads.com SSRPOD and be sure to use code SSRPOD. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. 
will obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Anna. Hi, Karen. Welcome to SSR. Hi. It's such a treat to have you on the show talking about Sweet Valley High. Specifically, we're talking about the seventh installment in the series today, Dear Sister. And you two are real experts in the Sweet Valley canon. And I asked you when you agreed to come on the show which book you wanted to talk about. And you suggested Dear Sister. So I want to turn it over to you. Tell me why this book. Yeah, there's many reasons. I think it it's 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 early enough in the series, but it also manages to be kind of a classic Sweet Valley High. Like it gets a lot of those big kind of tropes of the series in one book because you get like a twin switch. There is like Jessica acting like a crazy person. There's just it kind of it kind of hits all the big the big things that Sweet Valley is known for as it goes on. You know, it's just kind of a good encapsulation of just how mad a universe they've built with this little soap opera series. <laughs> Going back and looking at it again for the first time since, you know, we recorded our episode on about uh, Dear Sister, like, I think back in 2017. I mean, it's a very long time ago. But I just realised how many, well, I can only describe as classic Sweet Valley moments are in it. Like things that we still refer to now are, are in it, like ridiculous lines and super dramatic scenes um so yeah and as Karen said it really did kind of set out the stall for what you could expect for the rest of the hundred subsequent 130th books um so uh, yeah I think it's it is quite exemplary as a as a classic Sweet Valley novel yes 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 to all of that and I I do want to circle back to talk more about your podcast at the end of our conversation but I feel like it might be helpful, actually, before we get into the specifics of Dear Sister, to maybe set a baseline for your personal histories with the series as a whole and, like, what led you to dive back in for your show. Like, just kind of setting setting a baseline for what listeners can expect as we get into this conversation. This is the thing. So I, like, first came to Sweet Valley, like, within the kind of target age group, possibly even slightly younger, but, like... I was I came to it very earnestly and sincerely as a big fan and uh yeah there was back in my hometown in Dungarvan in the library there was one shelf that just had all Sweet Valley High and I just worked my way through every single book in it um and it was yes it was a great day when I got a new Sweet Valley High book uh out of the library so for me it was very much a series I very earnestly enjoyed and like thankfully a lot of the terrible messaging went right over my head <laughs> as a small child um and I think then yeah it was just kind of coming to it so much later uh I had picked up a book I found one in like a secondhand shop a couple of years ago and I was like my god it all just kind of came rushing back to me just the nostalgia of it and once I read this like one random book in the series I was just like oh my god I have to just go back and do all of this again because it was just crazy like reading it as an adult you do kind of realize just how ridiculous a series it is but like at the time I was just properly enthralled as a child like and just thought this was the most glamorous amazing thing like I just loved it <laughs> I'd see I I was about eight eight or seven or eight when the book series started and um they didn't have them in our library 
but they did sell them in the book sold by the supermarket where we did our you know family did the big weekly shop and so my sisters and I would go in and read the like flick through them at the bookstore but I couldn't you know my parents were very liberal about our reading but I cannot expect them to buy you know in nine-year-old a book called dangerous love or <laughs> heartbreaker or all night long um and then by the time I was old enough to you know be buying books with my pocket money when I was you know, 12 or 13 at that stage I was like into Paula Danziger and you know kind of the books that were a lot less cheesy than Sweet Valley. So it wasn't really till I was about 17 and one of my sisters somehow brought a copy of Crash Landing into our house and we all just thought it was the funniest thing. And I'm very much reading it in the spirit with which Karen and I read Sweet Valley books <laughs> for the podcast because there is something about them. They're so camp. They're so ridiculous, but unlike a lot of those 80s series, and there were a lot of them, they they really, there's something magic about them. Like those ghostwriters of Francine Pascal hit gold. So I've always thought they're really funny. And my sisters and I, between us, um, like you could buy a Sweet Valley High book in a charity shop or a secondhand shop for like 50p back then. And they were, this was the early, you know, 1991, 92. So they were everywhere. Yeah, basically read the whole, series always found them really really funny and um, then a few years ago when I um, I, I was listening to a, a, another podcast discussing one of the Sweet Valley books and I thought god it'd be great to do a full-on old-school television without pity style recap podcast of these books and of course Karen was already doing a recap blog and we did know each other, so um, I asked her if she'd be up for a podcast, and the rest is history. <laughs> it's meant to be. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I, I do think I read Sweet Valley High books specifically um, in the same spirit that you read them with now. So we are in good company, and we are ready to dive into Dear Sister. So the setup for Dear Sister is that, as I understand it, and I haven't been back to book six in a while, but as I understand it, the cliffhanger at the end of book six was that Todd and Elizabeth are in a motorbike accident. And I do remember finding some references to that accident in some of the other Sweet Valley books that we've read for the show when randomly like Jessica will be like, Liz, you know, you're not allowed to be on a motorbike. Not since that time even Ty got in an accident. <laughs> and I was like, but of course, like, why wouldn't you just have that rule um, in your home for teenagers? So, yes, I was like, OK, here it, it just happened. And so as we open, Elizabeth is in the hospital in a coma, I guess in theory recovering, but like there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. And Jessica is just heartbroken. And I guess it might be useful for me to share with you, although a lot of listeners probably know this, that I am generally team Elizabeth, though I have discovered coming back to the series as an adult that Elizabeth is not as untouchable as I thought she was. Like <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought that I was Elizabeth. I felt like Elizabeth. I wanted to be Elizabeth. And Jessica was very confusing for me. She was so much cooler than I could have ever hoped to be. And I thought that she was so thoughtless and, and so rude to Elizabeth all the time. And so I've since realized that they both are problematic in their own ways. But I was kind of excited starting this book because I was like, okay, I'm going to see a different side of Jessica. Like maybe I will start to feel for her more, have a little bit more empathy. And that does happen in this book. Like this book will get you more on Jessica's side. Starting with this moment with her, 
in the hospital, like literally weeping over Elizabeth's body. What do you think about this? Like this framing of Jessica that does feel different than the ways in which we've seen her in other books. I think it says a lot about it that it takes Elizabeth being in an actual coma before she'll show any consideration <laughs> for her. That's very on brand. I don't know how you feel, Karen. Yeah, she's a girl of extremes for yeah. sure. Mm. I do think, yeah, it, it is like you do feel for Jessica at first. And of course, and it is it is funny that it does literally take this ridiculous situation for her to suddenly feel empathy and actually realize maybe I haven't behaved the best in the past. But no, you do definitely start off, yeah, very just kind of concerned for Jessica because she really is taking it so hard. Because I suppose at the end of the day, as as terrible as she can be to Elizabeth, they do always come back together at the end of every book and work it all out whether that's deservedly so or not. But like, they are always like super close, whether whether it makes sense or not, basically. Yeah, and there's this weird thing that happens in this book where, so like to your point, you know, Jessica and Elizabeth are always at odds in these books, like almost always. They never agree. They're always doing something that the other doesn't approve of. And yet they always have this ability to like defend the other to other people. Like they're very loyal to each other in that like, I'm allowed to say bad things about my sister, but you're not allowed to say bad things about my sister, which is very real. Like, I think that's authentic to many people's sibling experiences. The interesting thing that happens in this book is that Jessica is typically able to explain away Elizabeth's, quote, like, annoying behavior as, like, oh, Elizabeth is so perfect. She's such, like, a teacher's pet. But in this book, we find later on that their roles kind of switch. And Elizabeth is acting a lot more like Jessica usually acts and Jessica totally doesn't approve, which is weird because she's acting the same way that Jessica usually acts. And then she's defending that behavior. So it's just this really weird kind of like circular thing happening where, like you said, like, yes, they're going to come back. We know they'll always come back together. But the journey to get there in this book is a little bit more complicated somehow. <laughs> I mean, I'd just like to think that any of those lessons that Jessica might have learned about, you know, the impact of somebody behaving as she always behaves throughout the entire <laughs> series would stick, but they do not. No. Uh, that's the, the one thing about Jessica is that when she's faced with somebody who behaves the way that she constantly behaves, she hates it. But she doesn't <laughs> seem to just make that last little leap into self-awareness that would actually... She's so close. So close. I feel like every so often she gets really close to figuring it out and it just never never quite sticks to landing. And it is funny because anytime usually a character that acts like Jessica is brought into the series, they're a villain. <laughs> yeah. and they're very clearly a bad girl. Whereas when it's Jessica, that's just her and she's just like that and it's no big deal. And of course, now that it's Elizabeth again, she does try and defend her, of course, because she is her sister. But it is just funny when you see that behavior portrayed in different ways when it's the same thing someone is doing, but it's all very much the, the perspective on it just changes the whole time. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. So I, I mean, my, the margins of this book for me are just like, there's so many asterisks of like, this is absurd, what is happening? <laughs> That's our notes every week doing the podcast. So. <laughs> and I typically will like go through my notes um, from a book and like type out some key quotes. But I like didn't even have time to do that for this episode because there were just so many. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> it's too much. So listeners, if you hear me paging through my book, it's because I'm pretty sure I could open to any page and be like, let's talk about this batshit moment. <laughs> So I think the first thing that was a real red flag for me, and I'm curious how this speaks to the conversations you've had about the series as a whole, is this very weird interaction that they have with 
well, that Jessica has with Dr. Edwards, who is Elizabeth's oh my God. neurosurgeon. That dude is so weird. So oh my weird. God. <laughs> Take your hands off that girl, please. He keeps oh. like shaking her by the shoulders. He's cupping her face. I'm like, so stop. Please step away from her. <laughs> I can see the resemblance between you. You're both beautiful. It's like, oh my God, you should be disbarred. Like, yes. I mean, or struck <laughs> off. Whatever. You should just get out of this Whatever place. list you're on. Right. Yes. Unsubscribe him yeah. from this list. Get him off of this list. I do feel as though in a lot of the Sweet Valley books that I've read, and we see it happen a few more times in this installment as well, like there's such weird relationships between adults and teenagers. No, God. It's wild. And in this book, I think Dr. Edwards is like the first instance of it because he is like in theory coming in to check on Elizabeth's condition. And then he sees that Jessica's all upset. And yes, we of course have to take a moment to like, remind readers of how hot these girls are even when they're a (laughs) sobbing and b comatose like they're both Mm -hmm. gorgeous it doesn't matter what state they're in so he like pauses to observe that great good we got that out of the way and then he yes touches jessica and then he proceeds to explain that like he can like do so much with medicine but like ultimately it's up to jessica to save elizabeth this is very much a Sweet Valley approach to medicine. It's always yes. like you have to talk them into getting better. And, yes. you know, you just have to have to wish that, like, basically send them good vibes. Mm. And that will do what medicine cannot. It's a very vibes-based science, the, uh, the field of Sweet Valley medicine. <laughs> it certainly is. I mean, maybe I should be practicing medicine if it's all about vibes. Like, I could probably... <laughs> I could probably go work at a hospital somewhere. I think we could all give it a shot in Sweet Valley, yeah. <laughs> the bar is very low in it's terms true. of their medical qualifications. I think my golden retriever could maybe go be a doctor in Sweet Valley. <laughs> oh, he 100% could. He probably has more, you know, persuasive powers than mm. some of the Sweet Valley characters. Like, like this is not the first time, even in, I think, the first 10 books, that somebody is, like, talking somebody out of a coma. Because I seem to recall yes. that when a character um, later on tries to take their take her own life, um, there there is a similar scene where it's like you've got to get better, you've got to wake up, and I'm pretty sure there's more as the series goes on, and it's a bizarre choice. Uh, I don't know why they kept coming <laughs> back to it, but they clearly have a, a very firm belief that this is what creates medical drama. Is just like somebody vibing and talking somebody <laughs> out of a coma that's it you have to want to get better or else it's just not gonna happen like it's so does everyone around you has to want mm. you to get better too yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> right exactly and obviously jessica isn't wishing it hard enough and so dr edwards really wants to see her even lower emotionally so that she can bring her <laughs> sister back um and then she tries she's like trying to have conversations she's like please liz get better and then dr edwards comes back in he's like no no you're doing this all wrong <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have explained that you should just be talking about like normal things, like pretend she's not in a coma and just like talk about school and life. And Jessica's like, cool, like I'll talk to her about how popular and cool I am, basically. Um, And she says, do you mind if I say something about your makeup, Liz? Don't get me wrong. You always look good. But with more eye makeup and blusher, you could be sensational. And your clothes, jeans and button down shirts are okay. But sometimes you're too conservative. When you get out of here, we've got to go shopping. I'll help you pick out some really spectacular outfits, okay? Raise your hand if this is what you would say to your sister if she was in a coma. Not me. My hand's down. All hands are down, listeners, just so you know. Just insulting her for like five minutes. 
I mean, that's the Jessica way. That's her. That's her idea of good vibes. So at least it is in character. I suppose we should be grateful for that. It is very true to Jessica. That is that is fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, the good news is it works. I mean, Liz does wake up, which is pretty cool. And I, you know, was obviously happy to see the gang back together again. And then, you know, there's like all this joy that Elizabeth is awake. There's relief. And, and things just continue to get weirder and weirder because Liz <laughs> comes home. And as far as I understand it, she's in the hospital for three weeks, which by all accounts that I've read online, um, if if Elizabeth is otherwise healthy, like why was she hanging out in the hospital for three weeks? We don't know. We'll never know. So she's able to keep Todd away, which is important. That's a big thing. So I did hear, look, I'm going through all my asterisks. I'm telling you this is out of control. <laughs> so Todd tries to come to visit Liz. And Liz is, of course, like embarrassed about how like not hot she looks, which is so rare for her. She says, on a scale of one to 10, I'm not even on this scale yet. Whoa, so embarrassing. <laughs> but then they kick him out so that they can flirt with the doctor. Uh, again, this is not portrayed as like wildly inappropriate. It's sort no. of in, in terms of, you know, the fact that he is an adult man. It's mm. more like, Liz, this is so uh, this is a Jessica thing to do. It's like, it really shouldn't be. And it's, <laughs> it's not okay. None of you should be doing this. <laughs> and the doctors should not be having any part of any of this. No, and there's no, like, you know, I think it's so interesting because, of course, I've read such a range of books for the podcast now. I've read The Paula Danzigers and I've read Sweet Valley and Babysitter's Club, like a little bit of everything from the decades past. And it's so interesting to see, like, books written in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And of course, like they're they're written in a different time than we're in now. And so the sensitivities are different. The sensitivities are really like non-existent in a lot of ways. And there's so much bad behavior. And sometimes it feels like there's commentary on the behavior being bad. And in this case, there's not. Like this is just accepted as normal, which like you almost have treated as campy because it's like I just I hope that Francine Pascal's ghostwriters like knew that this was bad behavior because it's just it's so over the top. I would like to think that they do. But to be honest, based on the depictions of really serious issues like eating disorders and bullying and uh, and racism like well I mean they do obviously but I shouldn't even say obviously like they they are clearly aware that racism is wrong but it's often you know quite cack-handed but in terms of how they depict like Jessica basically tortures somebody who has an eating disorder who has very self-conscious about her weight and, and who develops an eating disorder and it's shown as being sort of sad, but like Jessica does not learn anything from it. You know, it's it's not shown as being bad enough that the people who perpetrate these things are the baddies. You know, they're still going to be the protagonist of, you know, two books down the line. So I think there's a lot of stuff that is genuinely quite horrific in the books that is kind of, it's played down at least in a way that I don't think it would be today definitely i mean and as somebody who writes kids books are like and uh, young adult books like it absolutely would not be acceptable but they're definitely a lot less in some things a lot less self-aware than you would hope they'd be even at the time 
Yeah, it's kind of like when somebody does something particularly terrible, there's not always accountability for what they've done. And even if there is, it yes. never really lasts. Like two books down the line, this person will just be part of another gang again and it's all fine, even though they might have behaved absolutely horrendously just two books previously. It feels like there's very like properly lasting consequences for the people who do behave in really, really bad ways and really do like put other people in danger. So yeah, like that is a kind of a disappointing element of the series, unfortunately. And I do feel like even for the time, like I, I don't know how they really got away with it because even for it, like at the time, you know, there's plenty of, there was plenty of awareness, I feel like about a lot of the stuff that they were writing about, but they still just handled a lot of things very poorly. Yeah, I mean, even the, the fact that, you know, I know that just the, the episode that, that was out last week, the week before, was the great Meg Cabot talking about Blubber, you know, and that's a book about bullying of, of um, and, you know, stereotypes about weight. And it is not about how, do you know what, the people who did it are like, oh, they're kind of bitchy, but don't you love them? You know, it's right, they're cool. whereas that's <laughs> yeah. what happens yeah. in power play by, you know, the people mm. who are doing the incredibly fat phobic, properly cruel, horrible bullying. So it's not merely in inverted commas thoughtlessness. It's it's absolutely vicious. Or Lila and Jessica. Like, mm. you know, and and Jessica who will be having a sort of a comic adventure like two books later. So uh yeah, it's it's very it's this is why when you read it as an adult with a very sort of camp goggles on, <laughs> yeah. they're very entertaining in their awfulness. But it's sort of entertaining in like a Jacqueline Suzanne novel way. Like it's it's larger than life. It's yeah. ridiculous. But when you realize that, you know, kids were reading these books uncritically, it's not so funny. It's funny to take the piss out of definitely as yeah. an adult. But yeah, all these things like making it normalizing, you know, flirting with an adult man and an adult man <laughs> flirting with you is like, there's a line about Mr. Collins, which I think we will probably mention <laughs> we'll later, that, that sure. is just yeah. smacking. Yeah, and I think like it's interesting because all of these things are normalized kind of to the same degree. And I, I think that that's how I want to put it, because there's so much going on in this book and in all of the books, really. But there's an incident that comes at the end of this installment that unfortunately we're going to have to get to that is extremely heavy and scary and horrifying and dangerous and all of those things and just unacceptable. And so, you know, it's one thing to sort of like for us to be able to laugh off the fact that this weird like Dr. Edwards thing is normalized but it's it's really bizarre to think about the fact that like that's normalized to the same degree that like all of these other things are normalized and I think that makes it really hard to take as an adult okay but let's talk more about what happens when Elizabeth gets home because the <sighs> drama so Elizabeth of course you know she had a brush with death like she thought she was gonna die and now she's home and everybody's so excited to have her back she's getting spoiled by her parents and she just like doesn't want to be the same Liz that she was before. She wants to be a new Liz. And while she doesn't say it in so many words, like she really wants to be Jessica. And because they are both equally hot and as we know, twins, she's able to make that happen fairly easily by putting on a mini dress for school. <gasps> Not her usual button down shirt and khaki. Black. Well, she must have heard what Jessica was saying to her when she was in a coma. And that's the thing, like, <laughs> this is it. Why is Jessica mad when Liz is literally just doing what Jessica suggested that she do? Should she wake up from the coma? It's a real case of be careful, be careful what you wish for, because this is technically what Jessica wanted. And now that it's happening, it's all a bit weird. 
Though it is interesting, actually, it's a refreshing interpretation because I really didn't see it as Liz making a conscious decision to be more like Jessica. I thought it was more like this knock on the head has given her a um, just a personality transplant and she is Jessica. It's not like it's her subconscious. <laughs> it is just this is who she is. And maybe it is her pure id finally coming out from beneath the button down shirts. But um, <laughs> I didn't feel there was any choice in the matter. I felt she just, this was the new her and it was off the leash. Well, I guess like now that you mentioned that, so spoiler alert, everybody, at the end of the book, she sustains another hit on the head and is like, oh, I'm fine back to myself now. Like, why was I wearing this dress? <laughs> but I think as I was reading it, and I would imagine that a lot of people maybe read it this way. Like, I just assumed, oh, she has this new lease on life. Like, this is at least to some extent a conscious choice because she wants to have more fun and she wants to embrace life. And she's realizing that maybe she was missing out on opportunities because she was so conservative before the injury. Um, but yeah, actually, now that you mentioned that, I can see how you could read it in both ways. Yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to tell exactly. Like, do we get much from Liz's perspective? It is mostly from Jessica Very pretty much all the way through the book. So we're not actually in Liz's head, which is kind of unusual again for the books because we're generally going back and forth between the twins. But this is all pretty much Jessica's view of things. So I guess as far as she's concerned, it is just like her twin has woken up like a different person completely. So I guess when we don't really know what's going on inside Liz's head, it really could be either one. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are only a handful of paragraphs from Liz's perspective. But we do get perspectives from so many other characters which is always a joy um okay so she goes to school in this mini dress and Enid of course dear sweet Enid doesn't recognize Liz and she goes over to hug Jessica because for once Jessica is the more conservatively dressed of the two <laughs> I mean very unconvincingly yes very unconvincingly also like it's all relative because Jessica is still wearing something sassy well, I guess the like, you know, her usual sass level of sass is so high That's true. again that, you know, judging on her sass scale, this is, <laughs> this is low for her. So I guess we can understand Enid's mistake with the the uh, the twin, the twin styling. Yes, exactly. OK, so Enid is confused right off the bat. And like we have to take another moment for Todd because Liz is back at school. Oh. Todd's so excited. He's like, great. My girlfriend's here. It's going to be awesome. And she immediately has no time for him. Poor Todd. He, he's so endearing in this book. And it's not like him because I feel like there's lots of books where we just run out of patience with Todd. But like in this one, he really is trying his best and she's just not giving him anything. And you really do feel for the guy. Yeah. It, it has one of our favorite lines ever about <laughs> Todd, which we still refer to in the podcast where... Jess is, is giving out about having to do a book report on Moby Dick and says, I mean, Todd, who really cares about whales? <laughs> and we're told, it's Todd did, but he let the comment slide by. Oh, like, oh poor little whale-loving Todd. It's so sweet. <laughs> I, I guess the other thing that like I failed to mention early on, because there's just so many other things going on, is that like Todd and Jess are also both experiencing a lot of guilt as part of, of Elizabeth's recovery, because Todd, of course, was was he had the motorbike it was his motorbike and then the reason that Liz was on the motorbike in the first place is because Jessica was being horrible as usual and like refused to pick Elizabeth up from a party so Jess and Todd are kind of like united for the first time in in the fact that they are both experiencing this guilt and I think that's one of the things that at least like if we're to give this book a really fair reading like an earnest reading <laughs> like that's why they aren't 
pushing back when she is acting so horrendously. But of course, like we know that that's not really what's going on. This is just chaos per usual. But Todd is feeling bad because Elizabeth just starts like blowing him off. She's flirting with all of the boys. And of course, like we we just now descend into like what feels like a montage of all kinds of bad behavior for Elizabeth. She is not being nice to her friends. She's ignoring Todd. She's blowing off homework, which is very unlike her, as we know. She is lax with her responsibilities with the Oracle, which is the newspaper. And uh, yeah, it's just, she's she's not herself. Yeah, she even wants to have a party, which sounds incredibly awkward, where it's just the twins and <laughs> those boys from school and no girls. And she somehow thinks this will be like sexy fun times as opposed to... <laughs> really odd and, uh, and socially slightly uh, uncomfortable but luckily she does manage to or Jessica does manage to persuade her that they should actually invite their friends to the party so oh, it's so funny seeing Jessica having to be the voice of reason even though she does actually quite like the idea of this party she's like no but realistically every girl in school will hate us if we do this yeah it's very unsettling <laughs> for her to have to play that role so yeah they're planning this party and then Jessica really gets frustrated when on the day of the party she is the one who is setting up the chips and the sodas and the snacks and Liz calls from like, I guess, a payphone at the mall to let her know that she won't be there to help set up the party because she has something really important happening at the mall. And that cannot be delayed. Um, and then, you know, Jessica is like, I guess this is how Liz feels, like always having to clean up my messes. And so we get back to that weird like identity thing that we touched on early in the conversation where it feels a little bit like Jess is like a minute away from self-awareness because she's like, oh, interesting. <laughs> like, I guess this is how I make Liz feel every other day of her life. But instead of then being inspired to make some of her own changes, she's just A, upset, and then B, like, but I guess I can't be too upset because Liz almost died. <laughs> That's it. Every so often she's just, oh, she gets so close, but just... So close and yet so far. She never quite joins all the dots together. <laughs> she's on the cusp of self-awareness and possibly some lasting lessons but they do not last no nothing nothing does in sweet valley it's so true (laughs) we are informed that liz is wearing an even skimpier bikini than jess for once and i think like we have to of course and and you know this better than i do like we have to take a moment to just acknowledge like the disgusting objectification of teenagers bodies in this book And that's to say nothing even of of the fat phobia and of the conversations about weight, which like there are plenty of here. But just the fact that that even comes up as like a point of of distinction at the party that like, oh, yes, like we noticed that for once, like Liz was showing more skin than Jess. It's just it's just beyond. Oh, yeah, they're they're perfect size six figures and like tanned limbs are constantly being mentioned in a really unhealthy way like uh, there's there's that focus on looks in the books that again is something that is kind of camp and ridiculous when you're reading it as an adult but is just a really toxic message for actual children who were reading it when when it was coming out yeah i posted a, a reel this morning of the cover of the book that we talked about on this week's episode which it's an Anna martin book called just a summer romance and in theory the girl on the cover is 14 um, or she's supposed to be 14, as we find out when we open open the book. Um, but she looks like a Baywatch star. Like, she's wearing this, like, very sexy one piece. And, like, we just never had a chance between 
covers like that and the wake fields, what did we expect to happen with our collective body images and understandings of food and weight and self-esteem? Like it was never going to end well. So we did have to take a moment to talk about that and the party. But Todd's there. He's like creeping in the corner with Jessica. They're both like, oh, this is so sad. Like we don't even know who this person is anymore. (laughs) Elizabeth is flirting with all the boys. So we just like keep that in mind, everybody. That's still happening. Although it's in no way an excuse for what happens later in the book. I want to make that very clear. Let's pivot back to school and what's happening um, because Mr. Collins, I know we had sort of like planned to come back around to him and some weird stuff that's going on with him. There's like this plan that Jessica's going to go talk to Mr. Collins because she's like, oh, like he knows Elizabeth really well. So I'll go talk to him to see what's going on. Because of course, like at no point are we going to talk to our parents about this strange behavior. Like we'll just go to the newspaper editor. Ned and Alice are very hands-off parents. That is definitely a running thing. Mm. But hot. But they're hot. And so it's cool. Oh, very, very attractive. (laughs) Alice looks just like the twin sister. (laughs) You would never know. But Todd and Jessica have this... I I think it's Todd who is like, oh, Mr. Collins is used to talking to like the smart sister. Like it will be so weird for him to to talk to you, Jess. (laughs) But you look the same. (laughs) I mean... We're speechless. The sensitivity is typical of Todd. Yeah. 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 But Jessica goes to talk to him and it's just, I I mean, it's a fruitless conversation. Am I missing anything from that exchange? I know you both wanted to make sure we touched on Mr. Collins. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, the thing with Mr. Collins, especially in the early books, is that you always think he's on the verge of doing something deeply unsettling and inappropriate. Inappropriate, yeah. I mean, apart from one book where I think he's like turns up as a chaperone at somebody's birthday party, I think he's genuinely kind of fine. But yeah, he's he's not massively helpful here. I think it's more just like, well, you know, you just got to be there for her. It's that sort of advice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very nonspecific. Speaking of adults at school, Elizabeth has to speak to her guidance counselor because her grades are suffering from all of this partying and, you know, lack of work. And her guidance counselor tells her that she really needs to make up on everything that she missed while she was in the hospital. And Elizabeth suddenly now is like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not feeling very well. Like, you don't understand how taxing it is on my body to have to do this work. So she's, that's a very Jessica-like move. You know, that does kind of play into this theory that maybe she just was switched to Jessica because that's not something that Elizabeth (laughs) would ever do. She also makes up a lie about Ken Matthews and Susan, his girlfriend, <gasps> in, I know, Ooh. yeah, in the gossip <laughs> column, because she decides that now is her she's time. Using, yeah, she's using her power. For evil. Her <laughs> eyes and ears column is being used for evil, and it's that's when you know this is not Liz. <laughs> the the uh, sanctity Liz of the Liz oracle. Ma- oh, it's at risk. <laughs> and that's when and Mr. That gossip Collins, column. Mr. Collins is like, okay, now we now things are serious. Too far, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As well he might. There was one line too, I forget what it was, but there they I think it was from Mr. Collins's perspective, and it was something about like his finest journalist. And I was like <laughs> Is she? Genuinely, she is the gossip columnist and all they ever talk about is what an incredible journalist Liz is. And all she writes about is either the gossip column or how amazing Sweet Valley is. Those are her topics and she goes no further. Her her only topics and even her gossip column is like, I I can't remember the exact example of it we get here, but it's pretty much like, has Ken M been, you know, betrayed by Susan S? It's like that (laughs) level of insightful wish and... Yes, she's she's rightly 
uh, booted off the paper when Mr. Collins <laughs> finds out what she's been doing with this uh, with this incredibly important column. Yeah, really irresponsible <laughs> behavior. Okay, so we're leading up to the part of the book that I really don't want to talk about, but that we, of course, will have to talk about. Although I just want to pause and touch on the Percy twins because we have not even brought them into the conversation. Jean and Joan Percy, who are the daughters of Ned and Alice's friends, younger twins. I think they're like meant to be 11 or 12-ish. And their parents are in Europe. And I guess on like the day of, their parents were like, oh, we probably need them to go stay with somebody. (laughs) So let's just call the Wakefields. They have twins. So how cute will this be? And Ned and Alice say, sure, whatever. Uh, drop your twins off. And then that night, they're like, oh, we got to go out to dinner. So now <laughs> their teenagers have to figure out how to take care of these these kids. And as empathetic as I am toward this plight, you know, Jessica is dealing with so much. She's under a lot of pressure. She definitely does not need these, like, kids hanging out. The worst thing maybe that she does in this whole book is put these twins in the back of the car to go to a drive-in with their new boyfriend or her new, like, wannabe boyfriend, knowing full well that, like, the plan is for them to make out in the car. And she just, like, accepts – she expects everybody to be fine with it. She. This is one of the things that's kind of presented as being, you know, this is is just a comic relief. It's like you are literally – yeah. Going to town on each other in reclining seats of a car with some children behind you. It's just hideous. Carry on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I felt more for Jessica in the second incident with the twins when, like, she's made to drive them to flute auditions for, like, four hours on a Saturday. Yeah. Then I was like, okay, I get that you're frustrated. But this is only the first time you've been asked to help out with these kids whose parents are in Europe. Can't you just rain check this date? And of course, like the guy she was supposed to, or the the guy that she went with, I think his name was Dan or Danny. There's so many. Danny. Danny. So many like just completely mediocre white boys in this book. But Danny is like, no, it has to be tonight because Danny was super excited (laughs) about those reclining seats. And so we just cannot, we cannot change the date. No delays whatsoever. (laughs) So we have all of these very mediocre boys. And then there is one truly horrendous boy, Bruce. Bruce Patman, who kind of comes in on the periphery, as he always does. Like, he's always around. He's always the hottest boy in school. And Liz is flirting with him here and there. And then they go to this this party that – what was it called? Like a picking up party or like a – everybody goes single, which just feels to me like a party. But it also feels – there's something kind of about like – and I don't know a lot about swingers parties – but it felt a little <laughs> bit like a swingers party because it was like everybody who has a significant other just come alone mm. and we'll like see where we end up. Yeah. It's so weird. So weird. It <laughs> so odd for teenagers. <laughs> right. Like whatever event, swinging with consenting adults, <laughs> fine. You know, whatever anybody's into, obviously. But with a bunch of teenagers or it's there's I think there's some line about girls who are thought you know people who had thought that they were you know happily loved up found yeah. that they weren't after one of Lila's <laughs> pickup parties I'm sorry what uh, but you guys aren't just, married it's okay like it, it doesn't need to be this serious you never know what you're going to get with a Lila Fowler That's party true. seems to be true. part of it true. Right. well but that also, is true right. but it's also a very established thing in this town that they don't go anywhere without a date like they true. don't go to a single event without a date so 
in the world of Sweet Valley, <laughs> there's a kind of logic to That's it true. where everyone turns up single like anybody else would at a party when you're a teenager and it's fine and it's not a big deal. But like it is the end of the world if someone hasn't been asked to a dance or oh, a yeah. party. They can't go possibly anywhere. Just go with your friends, you know. <laughs> they always have to have a date. Yeah. No, they can't go anywhere on their own. And I think that's the, the thing that feels so odd about this party is that it's clearly like, even if you're not single, you are tonight, yeah, which suddenly kind of seems like assuming a lot on the, on the part of your guests. But I guess they know what they're letting <laughs> themselves in for. But um, yes, yeah, so Elizabeth's the, the bell of the ball. I seem to remember she does a lot of spinning around. Mm. From one boy to another, like a like a top I don't in know, a matador like, costume. I don't even know how yes, to... <laughs> I was I was waiting to talk about what they're wearing. They're dressed as matadors. <gasps> what a choice! It's bold. <laughs> they they just seem to have matador costumes like lying around the house. They don't you? Don yeah. for this. I have a couple. Well, I mean, I'm not. I'm just not up to Sweet Valley standards, sadly. Just yeah, I just wear my matador costume around Philadelphia, walking my golden retriever. <laughs> it's his job at the hospital, you know. <laughs> well, you gotta say, spread those good vibes. You might as well be dressed right. for the job. When I send him off, and pat him on the tail, and say, "Go have a good day at work." I'm in my matador. Costume. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in the matador costumes. This is when she really has her moment with Bruce, and of course, like Jess refers to her history with Bruce, which is not good. And she's like, how dare Liz, like, be flirting with him? She knows what happened with Bruce and I. And it's hard to, like, even keep track. There's a, several incidents at the end of the book where Bruce is getting increasingly predatory and scary and dangerous with Liz because he sees that she's interested in him. And there's, you know, I think it's, I think um, Liz and Jess almost have this icky, like horror Madonna complex thing going on a little bit, where it's oh god, where yeah, it's, definitely. And it's it's I we hate to be reductive about women in that way, but that's what these books do. And in this case, Liz is this sort of untouchable, pure sister who nobody has ever been able to get, other than Todd. And Bruce sees his window, and he is looking for another conquest. And he knows that she doesn't drink usually; she's not used to being in these situations. And so he very quickly realizes that he can gain a lot of power by, like, first of all, just showing interest in her because that's very tantalizing to somebody who generally doesn't get that kind of attention. And then giving her wine and, like, inviting her to go spend time with him in private places. Um, And it gets really dangerous. He becomes very aggressive with her. There's a pretty explicit lack of consent in this book several times. Yeah, because I think initially, like, they have... um... They have this this night at Lila's party where he's plying her with wine. By the way, we in a in a very famous later book, uh, Liz's drink is spiked, and um, they sort of imply that she has never drunk alcohol before. And then going back to this, it's like, oh wow, she, she definitely has. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Bruce thinks uh, basically there's one stage where he thinks this night it would take just a little more to drink and a little more time, which is really gross. But then uh, Todd drags her out of Bruce's car and punches Bruce, which is a classic Todd move. It is. And <laughs> takes Liz home and she passes out. So it's actually Bruce arrives for, like, Bruce doesn't give up. So he's really persistent in his predatory behaviour. So he asks her out again for another night. And this time he wants to... Uh, I guess have have his have his way 
Yeah. With the deluded Liz. Yes. And it's in that scene that she has her second head injury and sort of snaps back into herself, or so we're meant to believe. We we also need to touch on um, the bill of it all. Because there's this surfer named Bill. This is, as as reminder listeners, hold on, let me check the page count on this. This book is 140, 150 pages. Uh, it's mass market trim size, so it's small. It's There's a lot crammed into a very short little package here. So Bill is this surfer who, like, apparently, like, doesn't go to school. Like, I feel like he lives in, like, a van by the ocean or something. <laughs> and he's good friends with Todd. And we find out that, like, he's conveniently always been in love with Liz, but he never felt like he could ask her out, which is feels like the right thing to think. Somebody is thinking clearly. <laughs> and then when he finds out that Todd and Liz aren't seeing each other anymore, he's like, hey, Todd, would it be cool if I took Liz out? And Todd weirdly is like, sure, cool, cool, whatever. I'm sad, but whatever. <laughs> and Liz ends up double booking a night with Bill and with – Bruce and this is like the fateful yeah this is the fateful night when like everything goes wrong and when Bruce is especially aggressive but in a classic Sweet Valley move we do a little identity swap because when Bill comes to the Wakefield's house by the way I'm so impressed with myself that I'm keeping track of all of these names this is perhaps unprecedented I'm really impressed <laughs> thank you. Really cool. these, thank you. Thank these you. names are burnt into our brain but <laughs> yeah. we do not expect anyone else to have such an encyclopedic knowledge of Sweet Valley it's, it's hard especially when there's like multiple identity swaps and like potential amnesia oh, going God. on so Bill comes to the Wakefield house and Jessica answers the door and Bill's like I'm here for Elizabeth like this is going to be great and and Jess at that point realizes that Liz has already gone out with Bruce and so she's like, great, I'll be right back. Let me get Liz and comes back down and is like, here I am. I'm Liz and goes out with <laughs> Bill as Bruce is assaulting her twin. And Jess in true Jess form, like you can tell she's like, I've had it with Elizabeth. I am done. I'm done covering for her ass. I am done being nice. I'm going to just string this guy along. And uh, she on the final page of the book is like, JK, I am actually... It's, it is I. I have been Jess Surprise. all along. And that's our cliffhanger. Does Bill come back? Is he like a recurring character? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've yeah. never read he's about got him a whole, before. Well, oh, he's in it a lot because Liz, or his, he turns out to be a really good Shakespearean actor. Oh, yeah. Like Ross. <laughs> he plays Hamlet, doesn't it? Or, or Macbeth. Or Macbeth. All that time in a van. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. He was just working on his lines all this time. <laughs> so he's on the cover of the next, the next book. book. Okay. Yeah. See, we kind of have like popped around in the series on, on the podcast based on just what guests are interested in. So I like sometimes meet people at weird times. Yeah. And they do introduce more characters as it goes on. But um, yeah, Bill's kind of established fairly early and he's in it all the way through. Okay. So, um, but he's he's kind of, he's a good guy. There, I do remember actually in the, in the book about him, there's this, bit at the back that's like separate from the main narrative and they really don't do this often where it's like all about Bill and it's basically a recap of his backstory that isn't in the book at all <laughs> and it's really weird maybe it said he lived in a van I can't remember but <laughs> yeah they, they clearly thought he was important enough to give him this little sort of special yeah a little like a character synopsis or something but like yeah, yeah I'm into Bill I liked Bill um and so as we leave the twins Liz has come back to herself. She's like, I'm out of here. I don't want to be here with you, Bruce. She bites him, which was a smart move. And Jess has revealed herself 
to Bill and she's like, let me read the final lines because I'm sure they're yeah. <laughs> The last line is always great. She <laughs> says, I love you and not my sister. No, never. I couldn't possibly love anyone but you. And then Jess says, what's so special about me, Bill? And he says, your smile, your warmth, the sound of your voice, the touch of your lips, the feel of you in my arms. I've never been sure of anything in my life. And Jessica smiled. Then you do love Jessica Wakefield, Bill, because that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> the drama. I love it. Such, such drama. What a closing line. It's spectacular. That's where we land with the Wakefields. Okay, so I have to ask my Hallmark question. I always ask my guests this. And you have read these books now over a number of years and through different parts of your life. So I'm interested to see how you'll answer. Given this most recent reread and the conversation that we've just had about Dear Sister, how do you think that the book ages, especially uh, in the way that you maybe compare it to previous readings? I mean, I don't think it's changed for me in terms of previous readings because I read it first when I was 17 right. or yeah. so and I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> and also, you know, back in like I was little early 90s, riot girl loving teenagers. So I, I definitely thought Bruce's behavior was um, incredibly awful. But I think even then judging, you know, despite being a little teenage feminist, um, I don't think I thought it was that weird going on in the series where Bruce is just this sort of bad boy as opposed mm. to an attempted rapist, which he literally is in this book. Like, there's a bit where he's like, I've got real strong hands, see? Like, it's, yeah. he's, like, there's no, <laughs> you know, it really is. It's, he does go a bit old-timey gangster, but it's, uh, it's genuinely threatening and violent. And... I think just because of the general standards at the time, it's just like, okay, well, he's a dickhead. But it didn't seem, I think when we read it now, I think it's more, there's there's characters cross lines that definitely if, you, if a book was being written now, they would not uncross in, in a yeah. book that had any aspirations at all to be even vaguely feminist or... No, because there's a lot of lip service paid to feminism in the books as it goes on because Liz sometimes you know makes feminist protests about things but definitely today you wouldn't have characters behaving the way that Bruce and Lila and yeah. Jessica yeah. at times do and just being like guess that's just how they are that's very well said mm. I think it's funny yeah because I suppose going on further into the series like Bruce is such a big part of the series and it's a shame that it's his character that acts in this way so early on in the books and it really does kind of ruin his character because there are books where Bruce is this kind of like, he's arrogant but he's also quite funny and he can be quite endearing and it's when you go back and read this and it's like, oh God, this is a very early depiction of Bruce and it's awful, like you're really, like he's not a character you think you'd ever warm to but then like there were recent books in the series, like we're talking like book 101 or something like that where he's kind of funny and he's kind of endearing and vulnerable and you do kind of sympathize with him and it's just a shame that they use characters that you do go on to really enjoy in this way every so often and like you say with Lila there's like Lila has some really iffy moments like later on in the series too and yet you do really want to root for her in other books mm -hmm. and even the way that they treat what is basically attempted sexual assault in this book there's never really any kind of reference to it being as serious as it really was. No, definitely not. In the series, like, which is bad. And like, again, further on in the series, there is a more serious look at that issue. 
but it's also like well this is nearly exactly what happened in this earlier book and no one yeah. made any kind of a deal out of it mm. you know so it is a shame that it isn't treated as seriously as it should be definitely yeah, yeah. there's a real lack of consequence and of continuity in the mm. series um yeah. it's like they did they didn't know where they were going and they didn't realize that they were going to write all of these books yeah. and yeah i think that's a good point because i've now read i've read books with bruce that i think were after this i they must have been because bruce is we like him. He's like the knight in shining armor a yeah. little bit. And I was surprised reading this book where I was like, he's a villain. You know, he's very clearly a villain. Yeah. So that was interesting. But what a conversation we've had about Dear Sister. I'm glad you picked this one because <laughs> it certainly offered a lot of room for conversation. What else have you been reading that you might recommend for our listeners if they maybe need like a palate cleanser from Sweet Valley? Oh, God. Well, what What isn't a palate cleanser? <laughs> from like, literally Valley. anything. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, I mean, this is literally the the opposite of uh, of Sweet Valley in every sense, and it's not a a very cheery book. But um, I recently read and really liked a book by a, a Korean American author called Francis Cha called "If I Had Your Face," which is a um, a really sharp, insightful, unsettling look at sort of beauty standards and social expectations in in South Korea and. Uh, I'm also reading A Tip for the Hangman by Alison Epstein, who does a really funny substack called uh, Dirtbags Through the Ages, which I really like. And that's a historical novel about Christopher Marlowe. So, uh, yeah, it's quite an, quite an eclectic mix of literature. Very unsweet value. Yes, of course. <laughs> a nice mix. Oh, what I really enjoyed recently was uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by is it Gabrielle Seven. Yeah, so good. Um, like, I love a bit of bit of gaming anyway myself but it was just such a gorgeous book like I really just jumped into it and I just couldn't put it down I just loved it so much I think even if you didn't really have an interest in video games I think it's still really captivating um but all the little references really pay off as well I feel like when you've grown up playing like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter and you really like that kind of thing yeah that's a special book well I will include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes I will also include links to your podcast now listeners if you have not figured out by now that the Double Love podcast is to Sweet Valley specifically what SSR <laughs> is attempting to be to the broader picture of children's literature, then you need to go back and listen to this episode again because I just, I love what you're doing with your show and I love the tone that you use and the way you read these books. Listeners, you have to go check it out, but I'd love to send it back over to you and just share with us a little bit more about what your episodes look like and where listeners can find them. Well, our episodes are increasingly ridiculously long. <laughs> There's a lot to get yeah. in. That's the thing. Like you see it now, even with these early books, you're covering like <laughs> a thousand different characters and different storylines going yeah. on. And that only gets more complicated <laughs> as it goes on. So our episodes have been getting longer and longer and <laughs> longer. So they are they are a hefty listen. But, you know, uh, you know, you, you can get through in about a week or so. <laughs> Yeah, we don't we don't assume people will listen to an episode in, in one a, go in a day. Yeah. But yeah, we're we're doing it. Um, our, our like our little intro always says that we're exploring the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High book by book. Mm -hmm. So we have been going through the books in order. With um, every so often we'll do like a super special because they did all these ridiculous thrillers and like books where they go to France or um, go on a <laughs> bike tour or something or solve a crime sure. um, so, they can do anything so we've, they're like Barbie they, I mean they really do, they really are and like Barbie they do not age so um, oh my god they are basically they Barbie, are Barbie. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so we've been going through the books. We are now on, uh, I think the one we did, we recorded the week that we're recording this was 104? Four, yeah. So yeah, we're, we're on a, episode 123 of the podcast mm. and, um, and book 104 in the actual linear series. Yes. And they're just getting more and more unhinged as it goes along. And we are having an amazing time. Well, it's an amazing listen. Listeners, you have to go check it out. I, again, will include links to it in the show notes for this episode, and I will be tagging you on social media this week. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this book again and to talk about it with me. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this was brilliant. It was so great to go back and revisit it after all this time, and it was great fun. Yes, it really <laughs> was. I do feel slightly ashamed after you know knowing that like in your backlist, you've had people talking about like Judy Bloom and Paula Danziger and no special ballet shoes books that actually really meant something to me when I was younger and here I am talking about dear sister so yeah but this was a little more fun so okay. I mean I probably would have kind of more of a laugh talking about this than about you know a little princess or something so yes well, there you go. it's been yeah. very very yes. fun well I had a good time and I appreciate you thank you thank you so much thank you SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.